Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon, your host, bringing you progressive voices from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, before we launch into our first topic, I'd like to thank some of the local sponsors who make this program possible. A thank you to Gateway Marketing Cafe, a full-service grocery store in Des Moines' Sherman Hill neighborhood. The um, cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekend. Uh, cafe orders can also be available through Gateway's takeout service, and you can learn more at gatewaymarket.com. Uh, thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, offering planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance buildings. They uh, specialize in environmentally friendly designs, including insulated structures made from grain bins. More information at architecturebysynthesis.com. And finally, thanks to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, located in downtown Des Moines, just south of the Sculpture Park. Noche features both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. And you can learn more about them and reserve tickets at nochedsm.com. All right, again, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host, bringing you progressive voices from the heart of the heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. All right, later in the program, oh, we got a lot planned. I won't even get into it. Uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, <laughs> but of course, we got to talk a little bit more about the election and so many different directions that we could go on that. You know, I mean, there's a lot of celebrating this week, right? Everybody's happy. On the, on the left, Democrats are just thrilled that Joe Biden won. Uh, we were walking down the street the other day and Somebody is just yelling from their window, yay, Biden, yay, Biden. And you just saw these uh, spontaneous bursts of uh, enthusiasm all over the place. And, uh, of course, you saw some pushback from the uh, Trump element. Um, and occasionally those two elements came into conflict. But, you know, um, just looking at it from a Democrat's, the Democrats' point of view, I'm not sure what the big excitement is about. <laughs> if, if it's a party you want... It's a very dubious party at best. I mean, sure, you won the big prize. You beat Donald Trump. But, I mean, most everything else is lost, right? You, you didn't gain, well, and I know, I know the two, the two Senate races that remain out in, the, uh, in Georgia, that could uh, turn things. Uh, we'll see both parties are going to probably pump more money into those two races than any of the already record-breaking record Senate races that uh, that we, we had leading up to Gen uh, November 3rd. We'll see what happens. I'm, I think that's a long shot to think that Democrats might win control of the Senate. But beyond that, beyond what we don't know yet, what we do know is Democrats were expected to gain seats in the House and instead lost. What, five seats? And uh, it's hard to say. There are still a few that are out there. Uh, you know, Democrats also at the state level were expected to flip a few chambers uh, not one Republican-held legislative chamber was flipped. And here in Iowa, uh, we actually, I, I think, the, again, some of the numbers aren't yet counted, but it looks like the Iowa Senate will remain pretty much the same. And for those who don't know, it's an embarrassing 32 Republicans and 18 Democrats. You know, Republicans pad their majority in the Iowa Senate anymore. Democrats can just meet in a phone booth. Oh, wait, that's a, that's a, that, that just dated me. Phone booths, they don't exist anymore. Uh, anyway, it's really, <laughs> for them not to gain seats there and actually to lose seats. The Democrats lost in the Iowa House. Democrats lost, what, six seats? It's it just, and some of the, uh, some of the um, uh, districts that were won 
by Democrats in 2018 in suburbia. You know, some of those were lost. You know, so there's not a lot to get too excited about other than Joe Biden. <laughs> so the, the Democratic Party, and I mean, that's, that's party with a small P and synonymous with celebration. The Democratic Party is, <laughs> is um, maybe not, uh, not balancing the, uh, the celebration with, uh, with enough examination to see why things went wrong elsewhere on the ballot. A little bit wait. Then there's Congresswoman Abigail Spamberg, and she's going to do that for us. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure whether this was a private phone call that somebody just taped and shared, but uh, I've, I've heard some of the conversation. And, um, well, you know, she says basically uh, the Democratic Party should never, ever use the word socialism again. That's why we lost. Um, you know, the truth is, no matter who the Democrat is, the Republicans are always going to charge them as, with being a socialist. It's, uh, it's name-calling at best. So what um, I, th- I think what Spanberg is really getting at is what the establishment of the party also believes, in, and that is that the Democratic Party must remain uh, the party that does not delve too far into economic left policies. Uh, don't uh, promise Medicaid for all. Uh, don't promise too big of a agenda when it comes to climate action. You know, make sure you continue to allow fracking, you know. Uh, don't go too far when it comes to fixing America's broke immigration system. Because the corporate element of the party, the corporate supporters of the Democratic Party, don't, they, they don't want to see the status quo change too much. That, that's, that's been the truth for a long time. I mean, Bill Clinton ushered in that era, and that era remains intact. And the Democratic establishment is always going to find a way to apologize for losses by blaming them on progressives. I mean, they blamed it on Bernie Sanders last time when Clinton lost, and there's already Democrats doing that this time. Uh, And, you know, you would think that the rank-and-file electorate within the Democratic Party would say, hmm, we've heard this before and before and before. We've heard it for 30 years now. We're not going to buy it anymore. We shouldn't have been buying it this long. You know, the bottom line is there is a distinction between the, um, the cultural left agenda and the economic left agenda. And, you know, the, the, the poobahs within the Democratic Party get too stuck on the cultural agenda. And, um, they, and, and it almost becomes a distraction to allow them to avoid really looking at the economic agenda. And I just, I just want to um, look at Medicaid for all, okay? That's a, that's a, that's a, I mean, I, you know me, I'm focused on climate change, laser beam focused. But you look at the, um, you look at who won and lost among congressional Democrats. And this is just a sampling, but it's a pretty good sampling. Uh, here in Iowa, we had one Democratic incumbent, Abby Finkenauer, got beat pretty handily. You know, she won pretty handily in 2018. She got beat pretty handily this time around. Um, did she support Medicaid for all? No. Uh, Colin Peterson, no, he did not support Medicaid for All. He got beat. Uh, Debbie Mercasell-Powell, Donna Shalala, Joe Cunningham, other Democratic incumbents who did not support Medicaid for All and got beat. And then you've got folks like AOC, Ayanna Presley, uh, Cory Bush, Ilan Omar, Jamal Bowman, Katie Porter, 
all supporters of Medicaid for all who all won election. Now, so I, I know the establishment is going to jump in here and say, Ed, you can only run, you can only support Medicaid for all in a, in, a, in a very, very solid district. Well, you know, why are Democrats continuing to lose more and more of rural America? Why are Democrats continuing to lose more and more of the working class? Uh, why are Democrats continuing to lose a bigger and bigger share of the Latino vote? You know, it used to be, not too, not, not too long ago, the Latino vote was thought of as a core Democratic constituency. That's not the case anymore, and that is going to continue to shift if Democrats continue to not understand the importance of economic policies, you know, progressive economic policies that, that put the average person first, whether they are a racial minority in an urban center or whether they're a poor working class you know, white American in rural America. You know, when I was first in the, in the legislature, I looked across the chamber. I mean, and the Republicans controlled 51 to 49, a lot closer than it is now. But there were Democrats from all over rural Iowa. I mean, the suburbs were staunchly Republican. You know, it, if, if Democrats hadn't picked up seats in, in suburbia to, in 2018 in Iowa, I mean, that, they'd be, what, 65, 66 seats in the hole? You know, it's just... It is astounding to me that they don't get it. And I think part of the reason is they don't want to get it. They don't want to get it because that would offend their corporate backers. I mean, we saw what happened with um, we saw what happened uh, with uh, uh, the proposal before the DNC to um, you know not accept any money from fossil fuel interests. It passed, and then the uh, <laughs> the party leadership said, "Oh no, wait a minute! What did we just do? Oh, we just." We just shot ourselves in the foot because we get a lot of money from fossil fuel corporations. So they backtracked on that. They backtracked on it badly. And, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to create any kind of a populist economic agenda, whether it includes, um, you know, livable wages, uh, a, a comprehensive immigration reform policy, uh, again, health care reform that's, that's really reformed, not just this weak little Obamacare thing that, you know, again, I don't, I'm hoping personally the Supreme Court doesn't strike it down. That's going to create a mess. But honestly, Obamacare is not the health care reform we need. And there's no, there's no better way to, to understand that than by looking at what happened to uh, um, health industry stock prices the day after Obamacare passed. They went up. <laughs> because the industry knew that, hey, this is good for us. Uh, so if it's good for them, it's probably not good for the rest of us. And same with climate change. You can't continue to talk about uh, allowing fracking to continue, to replacing existing pipelines, to going slow, to getting things done by 2050 when the urgency is, is clear that we got to get a lot done a lot sooner, probably by 2030. So, you know, I, I think um, you know, another big mistake that's made here that's nurtured by the establishment is that uh, is the... Uh, is the dismissing of rural Americans as ignorant. Uh, Trump voters, boy, they must be as racist as Trump. You know, they must be deplorable. Where have we heard that before? You know, it, it just, and I'm hoping Joe Biden at least gets that part. But I'm, I'm not confident the establishment of the party is going to do it because already we've seen them starting to bash the economic left of the party, um, starting to, you know, hunker down and starting to try to blame some of the other losses on the elements within the party that don't fall in line with the corporate agenda. Yeah, so more could be said about that, but let's kick it off with that, folks. Uh, we'll be back in a, in a short minute or two here. Uh, we're going to be talking 
uh, about uh, a lawsuit against Kelsey Warren of Dakota Access Pipeline. We'll see where that goes. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, bringing you progressive voices from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. So, hey, before we introduce our first guest, I'd like to thank some of our local sponsors. Uh, thanks to Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. At Hawk, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. And you can learn more by going to the website, Hawk, H-O-Q, that is, Hawk Table. Com. Uh, thanks also to Bold Iowa, founded in 2015 to build rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, to prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Bold Iowa is committed to peaceful and nonviolent means to push for change, and you can learn more at boldiowa.com. Uh, thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience caring for all creatures, great and small, uh, you can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by calling Kim at 515-232-8766. All right, welcome back to the program. And uh, our, our first guest today is Matthew Bork. He is a climate activist, lives in Flint, Michigan, and has been uh, fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline for, I believe, as long as I have. Uh, Matthew, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. Nice to be here. Yeah, good. Well, so I, I was intrigued recently by learning that you have filed a lawsuit against Kelsey Warren. And just so people know who Kelsey Warren is, he is the head of Energy Transfer Partners, which is the corporation that is behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. He's also one of the wealthiest men in the U.S. And uh, I can't think of a more deserving person for a lawsuit. Yeah, just to clarify, it's even there's five defendants total. Kelsey Warren individually, Energy Transfer Partners individually, Latent Security individually, which is their general contractor of security, their CEO of Latent Security, and their operations manager of Latent Security, who is a state trooper out of Illinois. Okay, so what's the, uh, what's the basis of the lawsuit? Uh, it is, uh, I'm using what's called the Conspiracy Act. Uh, it's U.S. Code 1985, it's also referred to as part of the Klan Act, uh, and it was essentially written to stop the actions of the Ku Klux Klan. 
essentially to uh, conspire to misinform the public. So the basis of the argument is that uh, Kelsey Warren and others have misled the public as to the rationale behind building the Dakota Access Pipeline, right? All of their pipelines, actually. Oh, okay, right, all, all of their pipelines. And so uh, what is, a, just summarize what some of those um, deceptions are, if you would, Matthew. Uh, hiring the law enforcement officers, uh, which is usually a private contract, using secure, private security teams to help the street campaign, getting uh, even, say, the, story, uh, the governor of North Dakota involved to start propaganda and psychological warfare to control the media campaigns, split apart the communities. Uh, like, if you're very familiar with the eminent domain process, whenever someone, when they buy uh, an easement from an individual, it comes equipped with what's called a non-disclosure agreement, which stops anybody that is forced into selling a plot of their land from communicating with any of their neighbors. Right. Yeah, so I, I, I discovered that when I did my walk along the uh, pipeline route, route in Iowa. But let me let me ask you that. I, I, you, you're saying that uh, again. Kelsey Warren was deceptive. Um, th- those I, I can think of plenty of ways in which they were deceptive. Uh, that's th- those items aren't on the list. Those are also concerns of mine. But that I wouldn't classify those as deceptions. Uh, I mean, what about them trying to sell the idea of the pipeline as a way to free us of foreign oil? make America more independent. And then we, we learn as we go along that the pipeline is, in, at least the Dakota Access Pipeline, and maybe the other pipelines too, are actually um, creating an export situation. I mean, most of that oil is not being used in the U.S. So that seemed very, de- very deceptive to me. And I know a lot of landowners in Iowa said, well, I guess it's my patriotic duty to try to, you know, to try to prevent these wars from happening and having our young men and women being sent overseas. So yeah, I guess we'll support a pipeline that that keeps the oil here in the U.S. It didn't do that. Is that also an element of the suit? Uh, We're going over as much as we can in this lawsuit as a whole. Uh, Everywhere from the illegal use of eminent domain, because it is these pipelines are primarily for export, um, and eminent domain is obviously for the use of the people here within this country, uh, down to uh, how they misinform the public by claiming anybody that stands up against them as a terrorist. Right, yeah, they, they, they did try to characterize a lot of opponents, uh, some of them farmers and landowners, a lot of them Native Americans, uh, um, and other, in other cases just environmentalists, as eco-terrorists. So how do you argue against that? I mean, they could just say, well, that's just the, that's just the term we chose. You know, we, yeah, and, and how do you, how do you in, a, in a court of law, make the case that that was harmful? I've seen my security assessment. Um, essentially, you know, uh, when they're doing this propagation, they make secret confidential files that they share within their own networks, whether it's through PR companies, private security companies, all the way to Homeland Security. Uh, essentially, our incumbent uh, president now, uh, back in early 2000s, made something called the Patriot Act which basically declared that anybody that has thought about being a terrorist, they can now legally spy on you anytime they would like without any due process. Even further to state that they don't even do that, they can basically make somebody disappear, throw them into Guantanamo Bay without any due process, 
this is how they do it, is they start by creating a security assessment. Okay, Mine but, particularly, go ahead. I was going to say, the, the, the designation of terrorists in this case wasn't done by the U.S. government. It was done by a rich and, pow rich and powerful corporation. That's, there's a distinction there. That's correct. Right. So what, what, what is the remedy you hope to accomplish? Uh, let's say your lawsuit is successful. Uh, what, is, uh, what, what does Kelsey Warren and his minions have to do? I mean, quite honestly, the guy, I think, deserves to be behind bars. Um, civil court does not take you that far. Most people want to think that civil courts is all about money and damages, and it's, that is an issue in it. But that's not for us to decide. That's for a judge and jury to decide. Our importance of individuals about stabilizing our civil rights is to document it in the court so that way stops the actual practice, and all of our future generations can now look back at these cases and use them as proof so we can start fixing this system. Okay. So who is the, uh, are, do, you have, do you have a legal team involved with this? Uh, are there organizations involved? Who's the, uh, who's the plaintiff? I am. You are? Uh, I am everything in this, I guess. Going solo. Uh, Pro se. I'm well. Okay. Uh, you know, obviously, going up against the largest pipeline company in the world, uh, uh, not a lot of people want to take this on. You know, a lot of uh, the movement is how we protect everybody else. This seems like the, e the best way to protect everybody else while still accomplishing the goal. Um, so I went ahead and wrote this court document myself. I filed it myself, and I am my own attorney essentially and which uh, which court will hear it if it gets that uh, far. it's the eastern it's the eastern district federal court in detroit okay a lot of my case study includes both uh north dakota so in the case study it includes a relatively four-year timeline uh that brings you all the way to the rover pipeline and during the rover pipeline i have to give props to michigan that did actually step forward to putting their foot down and stopping Energy Transfer Partners construction based on them releasing gasoline contaminants into the local watershed that went into Ann Arbor's water supply. Right. Now, there have been a lot of lawsuits against Energy Transfer, against the Dakota Access Pipeline, against some of these other pipelines, and some not... I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's actually been any against actually Energy Transfer Partners in California. Well, I mean, not, what I mean is elements. I mean, I mean... It, there were cases here in Iowa where people charged that uh, energy transfer partners had no right to use eminent domain, uh, and that uh, I mean there was one lawsuit that went to the state supreme court. There were there were lots of other lawsuits. There's all these so many lawsuits. Some of them individual landowners alleging that the company yeah. the company misused or misinformed well deceived them back to that, and also misused the process to take their land, and didn't do the job they said they would do in terms of protecting the topsoil, for example, the, uh, the compaction correct. of the soil. Well, so having, there's lots of lawsuits. They're out. having big problems in Pennsylvania right now on the Mariner East 2 line. Right, I've heard. That's um, a constant problem. There's some lawsuits that are coming up in Pennsylvania. There's two large class action suits uh, for North Dakota, for Standing Rock, including the water cannon night, uh, as well as the closure of 1806. There's also some more lawsuits that are coming out of Louisiana for the Value Bridge Pipeline. Um, yeah. 
Greenpeace is still in defense from their slap suit. I thought that was resolved. I'm I'm pretty sure that's been resolved. I mean, I was part of that suit as well. It's not? It apparently has not. Okay, well, (laughs) I I didn't know that, and I'm on that Um, suit. But anyway, yeah. Well, hey, Matthew, um, I've got to run. I've got, to, I've got to run yep. through a short break here. Um, I do appreciate you joining us. And if people want to learn more about your lawsuit, uh, maybe help out, where do they go? Uh, you can go to Uphouse Creek Camp, which was our camp name. Uh, you can just research my name, Matthew Bork, uh, online. That'll start bringing up stuff. Um, B-O-R-K-E. That's correct. Okay. Um, and if there's one more thing I just want to put out there, because we didn't have time to cover this, a lot of the rest of this stuff, comes down to how we end up with what we call missing and murdered indigenous women, yeah, uh, where the human trafficking avenues come yeah, in. That but certainly is obviously connected. we only have so much time today. <laughs> yeah, that certainly is connected to the whole problem that these pipeline construction yeah. projects have created. Hey, Matthew, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're talking to Matthew Bork, folks, uh, from Flint, Michigan. He's leading the lawsuit against uh, Kelsey Warren with Energy Transfer Partners. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, in a minute, we'll come back. And uh, Andy... Uh, Andy Johnson is going to join us. We're going to talk about um, uh, energy energy districts. They're taking off and having some success. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, Ed Fallon, your host, uh, bringing you progressive voices from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, before we introduce our guests, I'd like to thank some of the other local sponsors that make this program possible. Uh, thanks again to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store here in Des Moines' Sherman Hill neighborhood. And the cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. Cafe orders are also available using Gateway's takeout service, and you can learn more at gatewaymarket.com. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe, located on the eastern edge of downtown Des Moines Sculpture Park. Ritual offers fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. You can learn more about Ritual Cafe at ritualcafedsm.net. And finally, thanks to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Local food security is becoming more and more important to both urban and rural residents. Information can be found at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, hey, welcoming uh, Andy Johnson to the program. Hello, Andy, how are you? 
Good. Thanks for having me. Andy is with the Winnesheek Energy District in Northeast Iowa, and he's helped um, he's helped the county, uh, him and the others involved, to help the county create uh, literally hundreds of clean jobs and attract millions of dollars in investment. And that, of course, uh, that initiative has also saved a whole bunch of uh, energy costs, uh, probably millions of dollars. And the model is being replicated in cities across Iowa and elsewhere. Uh, Andy, welcome to the program. Yeah, I do appreciate it. We're well, always happy to talk about the, the let, district model. Let's start with the uh, just what is an energy district? What, what exactly are we talking about here? Sure. We are, at this point, a county-level nonprofit that focuses on uh, what we call green meets green, twin pillars of clean energy transition. One of them is clean energy prosperity. Uh, we invest local, buy local, save local, uh, create jobs in transitioning to that locally owned clean energy. That's efficiency, solar, and all things clean. Um, and then the other twin pillar is climate stewardship. So in the process of going to clean energy, we're also implementing, we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we're implementing climate stewardship for the the good of future generations. So the two go together, and, and we work on both full speed ahead. Okay. And uh, did this district come into being in, partly in response to the the um, local power initiative that was, I, I think, was defeated by, what, <laughs> just four votes, if, if memory serves? Uh, so there was an effort for municipal electric utility creation. That was actually just in 2018, 27 and 2018. We were a, a, a big part of that because we believe in all things locally owned, including utilities. But the energy district predates that by a long shot. So oh, okay. right now we're celebrating our 10th anniversary. We oh, wow. started right. in 2010. Yep, long, long ago. And we really came about in, as a community conversation. Um, we, there were a lot of folks doing interesting things uh, 10 years ago, even on clean energy. The city had been discussing the, you know, the Kyoto Protocol, if anyone remembers that. Oh, yeah. We have Luther College here that has been doing great work on clean energy for quite a while. Um, a few businesses you know, households, but, but the conversations essentially were saying we have to really ramp this up, look at the potential for, for economic investment if we can go clean energy throughout the town and the county, look at the imperative for stewardship that we have. We've got to form an organization and do it. And so um, just really briefly, I mean, the model of an energy district uh, grew out of the, the model of the soil and water conservation districts, which mm, many sure. islands are familiar with right. being a rural state. And those, those districts grew out of the original New Deal, essentially when the federal government was implementing a great many new agricultural both subsidy and conservation programs and recognized pretty early that they needed local partnership. So what kind of uh, local we, support do you, are there? Are there a, I mean, is, a, is the big utility company, Alliant Energy, are they opposed to the energy district in your area or are, all, are folks so, generally speaking on board? Yeah, good, good question. We have a lot of local support. We have tremendous local partnership. When it comes to utilities, it's a little bit of a, of a both ways. Um, we work pretty closely with the consumer-owned utilities, local rural co-ops, rural electric co-ops, and municipal electric utilities. Um, we don't have any municipals in Winnesheek, but we do in northeast Iowa. The investor-owned utilities, Alliant and Black Hills, we have worked together. We have some common interests, but fundamentally the business model of investor-owned utilities is to provide a service that we all pay for in a sense. Profits then flow out to the in investor owners of those utilities, which are not local and which are generally not even by and large Iowans. Right. And yeah. so their business model is one of wealth extraction, and our business model of one is one of local ownership and wealth creation. And that's, you say you've created a lot of jobs. What what is that? Uh, what kind of jobs and uh, how many? 
Yeah. Yeah. So we've been doing energy efficiency technical assistance ever since day one. It sounds, you know, it's a little boring. It's not as sexy as solar, but we've also been doing a tremendous amount of solar. Just in those two areas, we've documented now that we've been running numbers for 10 years, um, investments of, of about $20 million in local energy efficiency and locally owned solar. This is not utility solar with savings then of over $35 million through the lifespan of these practices in energy. So that's $35 million that will be kept local. When you run some of those numbers through some of the methodology of economists in a fairly conservative manner, not over-promising, over we come out to about 250 jobs saved both up front in the implementation, in the build-in, in the build-out, and then through the savings that come over time. 250 so, jobs, that's, that's in one rural county. One rural county. That's pretty impressive. And we've really just begun. Yeah. So where do you go from here? What's the next step? Well, we, we work hard to ramp up and scale up. Um, work like energy efficiency at solar, We, I'm serious, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Energy efficiency is always growing back. The technologies are always getting better and more cost-effective. So we can do rounds and rounds of energy efficiency. Um, solar, we have probably a 10x, 10 times the average solar penetration rate in Iowa here in Winnesheet County. We have over 30, 350 locally-owned solar systems. And still, that's also just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we could do that 10x. So, so there's so much more to be done locally. That wealth creation and retention potential is, is amazing. Um, but then we're also working really hard on the movement. There are now 10 energy districts in Iowa. We've created an association and a network. Um, they're obviously at all different stages of development and resources. And we're trying to work on, on mechanisms that would help, you know, put some financial viability under all of them and, and help everyone get to work. So that's, that's a big part of our work as well as just beyond. So you mentioned that the, uh, you work well with the, with the smaller utility districts, the municipal utilities and the uh, rural electric co- cooperatives, for example. But what about the big investor-owned utilities, uh, Warren Buffett's Mid-American, uh, Alliant Energy? Are they, are, are they okay with this or are they pushing back against it? Yeah, like I say, we've done some partnership, and there's been some pushback. Honestly, it goes both ways. And, and the reason is, fundamentally, the business models are different. So, you know, investor-owned utilities, business models are one of, of wealth extraction. They sell service, but they extract wealth from Iowa communities, counties. And, uh, and we believe that that wealth could be invested locally in local ownership. Um, I do want to emphasize, too, though, that when it comes to big renewables, uh, we've been involved in a lot of regulatory cases at the Utilities Board. Uh, we do actually a lot more of that policy work than we thought, you know, back 10 years ago, but that's because it's critically important just to keep the doors open for local ownership, things like net metering. But in all of our work in, in policy, in regulatory dockets with Alliant, Mid-American, and others, we've emphasized over and over to the Utility Board members, we are not anti-investor-owned utility building large renewables. We do need large-scale wind and large-scale solar, and that's going to be built in large part by the big investor-owned utilities. But we've emphasized over and over that do not allow, Iowa regulators should not allow the investor-owned utilities to go big renewables to the preclusion and exclusion of customers and communities. In other words, we also need all the tools in the toolkit open the door for customers and communities to invest in and own those renewables as well. And then Let's have a renewable energy arms race. Let's see who can build out the most and the fastest. Our communities, our counties, our customers, the utilities, then we'll just get there twice as fast. So, so do you uh, look at, just taking a look in the rearview mirror, did you uh, find that during the Donald Trump administration it was harder to accomplish your goals? 
Not necessarily. Um, again, most of our work is at the local and at the state level. So policies like net metering, of course, matter. But those are generally, at this point so far, state-level policies. Energy efficiency programs are generally, at this point, state-level programs. Well, well, there's a bunch of federal so, funding that goes through the state. Well, those programs, not so much. Um, but there will be, and there can be, and there should be. And yeah. so part of our engagement nationally, to the degree it's been and might be going forward, is in trying to create this energy district model that says, look, um, local leadership, local champions, local boots on the ground and technical assistance um, should be happening in every county and community. It shouldn't just be at the mercy of the utilities if they want to offer programs or not. The utilities shouldn't hold all the purse, purse strings. We should have these local institutions like energy districts right. leading the clean energy transition anywhere. And if there's going to be big national movement now on climate and energy, call it a Green New Deal or whatever else you want, going to take a while. It's going to be stepwise. But that national vision needs to include local leadership and lo models like energy districts. So that is one of our priorities right now. So do you if, think, do you think, uh, oh, sorry. Well, again, looking forward now to the Biden administration, do you see, I mean, he's talking again about an investment of $2 trillion. And I presume some mm -hmm. of that would be the kinds of investments that would help local communities, rural communities in particular, that are trying to accomplish some of the things you're, you're accomplishing. Do you see there being some, uh, some positive help coming from the federal government in that light? I would hope so. I think so. Again, if the original New Deal could create a universal local institution like soil and water districts, which has had an amazing run and success stories, you know, why can't our clean energy efforts at the national level now support clean energy districts in every county? And in Iowa, you know, the investment opportunity, again, in every county is great. Now, just one example, for, for example, even just thinking of the local state-federal partnerships that's in front of us right now, Iowa has a solar energy tax credit. The, it's pegged to the federal, but the federal solar energy tax credit is starting to phase out. Will the feds extend it? We hope so. Yeah. So maybe if, over the next year or two they will. But meanwhile, the Iowa legislature could also look very hard at this and say, you know what, whether the feds do or whether they don't, this tax credit is working in every single county in Iowa, increasingly in the rural counties. Let's keep it going, so let's decouple it from the federal. Good work, you know, Andy. We, we yeah. could do that. Good work. Hey, folks, we've been talking with Andy Johnson with the Winnesheek Energy District from Northeast Iowa. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, con congratulations on the excellent work that you all are doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really all right, folks, uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk more climate change before... We get into our final segment, which is going to be, wait for it, about how to raise artichokes in Iowa. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 
8766. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host, as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the progressive, I'd like to believe, heartland of the heartland. <laughs> uh, yeah, some days I wonder. But uh, hey, before we dig into our next topic, I want to uh, thank our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, that's my full-service grocery store, and Gateway's Cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper, and also for breakfast on the weekends. You can uh, do your cafe order also using Gateway's takeout service, of course. And you can learn more at uh, gatewaymarket.com. All right, so one of my uh, favorite climate publications is called Covering Climate Now. It's a collaboration that's uh, led by The Guardian, The Nation, and the Columbia Journalism Review. And, uh, you, you know... Part of the problem with coverage of climate is that it has been dismal and irregular. And before I talk about where we stand currently, I want to flash back to the final debate between Trump and Biden, the debate that wasn't insane, where Trump didn't cut off the moderator or Biden, what, 128 times? <laughs> okay, so it was, it was close to a normal debate, if you can have anything normal happen with President Trump involved. And it was the only presidential debate ever to provide kind of subs, you know, you know, substantive conversation on climate change. So uh, Kristen Welker, she was the moderator. She's with NBC News. And I'd say she did a, did a good job. And I think you kind of know she did a good job because Trump blasted her repeatedly after the debate. Uh, <laughs> so you might remember Welker uh, asked the candidates uh, what they would do to address the climate crisis. And she couched that in the context of, well, you know, how do you do that while also supporting job growth? You know, and that's, um, yeah, that, that's a, that, that question is definitely an improvement over what we normally find during presidential debates. Again, in 2016, nothing about climate. Um, in some of the primary uh, debates leading up to the caucuses and primaries, we saw some conversation about climate, not a lot. But it's, uh, it's, it's an improvement, definitely an improvement. And, um, you know, Welker did not phrase the question about climate as a matter of opinion. That was good. That was progress. And um, she also, I thought this was good, she also asked about the disproportionate levels of pollution in communities of color and, and how climate was impacting minority communities. So, yeah, this was the first presidential debate ever to have a question relevant to environmental justice. Yeah, um, better late than never, I guess, but... Uh, <laughs> so, um, of course, when Trump responded, he predictably uh, lied. <laughs> he always, you know, he used the same lies he always uses. Uh, and one was, of course, that wind power is, quote, extremely expensive. Um, wind power kills birds. Um, at least he didn't say that it causes cancer. He also inflated the cost of Biden's climate plan, which Biden pays at $2 trillion. And somehow um, Trump, you know, penciled that out to $100 million. I have no, a hundred trillion rather. I, again, I have no idea where he gets these things from. Who does? So, you know, and by comparison, of course, Biden called climate change a, quote, existential threat to humanity. And he laid out some details about how he would invest public money building this new clean energy environment uh, and how, how he would, you know, create jobs in this new economy. 
all good stuff. And um, yeah, again, it was refreshing. Uh, you know, you get you get 12 minutes during prime time during a presidential debate where they're actually talking about climate in a substantive way, not with leading leading questions, um, not with questions that kind of say, well, do you think it's really happening? So that was good. That was very encouraging. And of course, what did the press do after the debate? Oh, of course, they fumbled it. They mostly they, they mostly fumbled it and they mostly ignored it. You know, um, journalists, of course, uh, love that horse race. And uh, a lot of the lead up to the election was about the horse race. Who's doing better in the polls this day? Who's doing better that day? Um, without really talking about the climate component of the debate, except to the extent that the news media focused on Biden's, um, Biden saying he was going to transition away from the oil industry to renewable energy, which scientifically, that has to happen. That, that makes sense. That is essential. But instead of the... Uh, press saying, oh, yeah, that was good. Um, thanks for speaking truth on this, Biden. Uh, they picked up on what Trump did and started saying how it was going to cost him in battleground states. Well, it didn't cost him in Pennsylvania, as Trump said it would. Uh, that was fortunate. But the, um, you know, uh, the Washington Post, for example, talked about how politically damaging were Biden's comments. Um, and even the uh, E&E News, uh, that's Energy and Environment, I believe it stands for. It's, uh, they focus pretty much on energy and, and climate issues. Um, even they had the question of, quote, will Biden's end oil pledge work magic for Trump? You know, so they really took the, uh, the worst possible element of the climate conversation in that debate. And, you know, we, we need to just remember and keep this front and center that we have to transition away from fossil fuels. Joe Biden was right on that account. And then, of course, he also said he didn't want to ban fracking. Another conversation. But, you know, what, what Biden said about transitioning from oil is not a political statement. It's a scientific statement. It's, it's based on scientific reality. You know, again, the, uh, the leading scientists of the world who are in agreement by, what, 97, 98 percent of them? say we've got to cut emissions in half by 2030 and reach zero emissions by 2050 if we hope to you know, somehow escape the uh, climate chaos that's heading our way. So, um, you know, the only way to get to that is a, is, a, is a rapid movement away from fossil fuels, away from oil. And so, yeah, good for Biden for saying that. You know, pour on the media for... Uh, pretending that somehow that was an opinion and somehow that was politically charged. Yeah, so we, we here's what I'm hoping. One thing that we have seen since the election is the mainstream media uniting around the uh, reality, the political reality that Joe Biden has won the election. You know, it's they're, they're really strong. They're really firm. Their language is is is. They're, they're not budging. I mean, I'm trying to remember exactly one of the um, NPR headlines uh, after Trump, one of Trump's speeches. I think they used the word false twice just in the headline. You know, Trump falsely claims, uh, and then something else about it being false. Um, and so they've really, the, the mainstream media have really uh, weighed in on the side of truth when it comes to what's really happening with the election. And, you know... 
And again, this is another conversation. We'll see where this goes because I, for one, have no doubt that Trump is going to pursue every possible legal channel that he can to try to overturn the election. And his ace in the hole, of course, is the U.S. Supreme Court, which he has packed. Let's make sure we use the word packed correctly. Trump has packed the Supreme Court uh, with the help of Mitch McConnell, of course. So the... um, but, but the, uh, the post-election, the mainstream media did a great job at, at, at laying it out that, that Trump was falsely claiming that there were dead people voting, falsely claiming that there were all these um, illegitimate ballots. I mean, one falsehood after another. I, I watched a press conference in, um, in Las Vegas where a couple Trump surrogates were uh, speaking to the press. It was supposed to be a press conference. Well, they wouldn't even say their names. <laughs> and when they were asked questions, they just walked away, which is exactly what Trump did, of course, as well. So I think, you know, this to me identifies an approach to media coverage that is both fair and balanced, sorry, Fox News, and also, um, rep, you know, respect science. You know, in, in this case, uh, what I'm talking about post-election, they're respecting the political process, the election results. There's no reason the mainstream media couldn't do the same on climate. And again, you know, speaking of another scientific topic, the coronavirus, they have done a remarkable job at staying focused on COVID-19. I mean, every day there are leading stories. It remains the top story since March. That's amazing. You don't often see, uh, you know, an issue, a challenge remaining front and center in the news for nine months straight. But it has. And it looks like that's going to continue. There is no reason why the media couldn't embrace the other scientific challenge, in this case of climate change, and give it the same type of fact-based coverage. Fact-based and continuous, because that's what's needed. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what Joe Biden's going to do on climate. Uh, I do believe that he, um, he has evolved on this. I think we saw that during the work done here in Iowa, during the caucuses. I do think Kamala Harris is a bit stronger on climate than Biden. Part of it might be who he appoints to key cabinet positions. And, of course, part of the problem there is that if Mitch McConnell still holds the, uh, holds the reins, um, yeah, he may be shooting down some of the uh, some of the key people involved. So, uh, you know, so we'll see what happens with that. But I, again, I think the press could do a heck of a better job at focusing on climate like they did on the election, like they've done on COVID. And let's encourage them to do that again. Um, covering climate now, the uh, the creature of the Guardian, the Nation and the Columbia Journalism Review Hats off to them. They've done a great job with the uh, Covering Climate News um, network that, uh, that keeps, keeps rolling forward and keeps providing us with the uh, kind of uh, coverage that we wish we would see across the entire media universe. All right. When we come back, we're going to shift gears from uh, the big picture to the small picture. And the small picture involves artichokes. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-built services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. 
Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Ed Fallon with you folks here. Hey, thanks to our local business partners, including a Gateway Market and Cafe, that's my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. You can do lunch and supper seven days a week in the dining hall or through the takeout service. And breakfast is available both dining hall and takeout on the weekends. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. All right, again, welcome back to the program. With me now, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farms. Most people are kind of winding down their gardens. Well, we have this problem. We have an addiction. We eat food all the time. I mean, we eat, and then three hours later, I'm, I'm hungry again. It's, it's, it's impossible. So we like to try to think of gardening as a 12-month preoccupation. And here we go, starting to plant already, mid-November. Well, the surprising thing we're going to be planting, it might surprise some people, within a few days, artichokes. Guess what? Even though artichokes have ties to ancient Greece and Rome. They were uh, 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 offshoot of the cordoon. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, plant. <laughs> what, what is it called? Cardoon. Cardoon. Yeah. Not the cordoon. The cardoon. <laughs> um, we are growing them in Iowa, and, and that's, that's really rare. I've been growing them for 25 years, which, I mean, maybe I should have my head examined, but they actually work. Uh, it, it's been a trial and error sort of thing, but but we've made it work. I, I've had an interesting history with the artichoke, but probably the most memorable moment for me was when I was running for the state house in a new district, and I knocked on a door. I didn't hear anything, but I heard noise out back. So I walked around the back of the house on the south side, and there was this little old lady sitting on a chair watering her garden. And she hardly spoke English at all. She was Italian, and, and she'd come here from the old, from Sicily, and she hardly spoke English. And we were, um, we got to talking a little bit, and uh, when I told her I grew artichokes, she said, oh, you grow the artichokes. Oh, she was so excited to meet somebody in Des Moines who grew artichokes. And so I, um, I ended up bringing her a couple plants. And uh, then she had me come back and visit, and she took um, a big artichoke one day, and she was going to cook it for me. And she said, first you take uh, the artichoke and you bonk, bonk. She banged it on the table and split open the, the leaves. And then she poured this Romano cheese egg mix in there and baked it and served me up an artichoke. <laughs> and that's how, I, that's how I got to know the Tamea family. Um, and also just make a connection to another artichoke uh, aficionado in Des Moines. Right. Um, we don't grow that big an artichoke. Our artichokes are, are they usually the green globe is the variety that well, we grow. And I've grown Imperial Star and, uh, and um, Violetto and Romanesco. Mm -hmm. Green globes seem to do the best because you can kind of more easily trick them into thinking 
that they're an annual and not a biennial. And that's the trick that's the we trick. want to pass on today. Uh, at Birds artichokes. and Bees Urban Farm, we plant artichokes now, and we've got a, a growing setup in the basement. And we'll let the artichokes grow down there till they get, what, a, a, a foot, foot, a foot tall, tall or so. Or so. We'll, have, we'll transplant them right. at least once. Mm-hmm. And then we put them in a cold room. We put them in the guest room. So note well, to we friends. Do that, we do that in what month? February? February, March. Yeah. Okay. Note to guests, you don't want to come visit us in February or March. The, the room is occupied by artichokes that like it in the 40s, maybe low 50s. Nobody's visiting <laughs> us these days. Well, not these days, yeah. No, if somebody does come and visit, we move the artichokes out. It won't hurt them to be out of there for a day or two. Anyway, but the idea is to trick them into thinking they've been through winter, basically vernalizing them. Mm-hmm. Hey, you've, you've just done your first year. Now go forth and produce fruit. And artichokes are unusual as well. The reason they do so well in the Mediterranean where they originate is that people can just grow, plant the artichoke one year and they produce in their second year. So it's fine. They can just leave it out all the time. We can't. We have to trick them into thinking they're another year old by doing the vernalization. And we keep them in that cold room and then we put them back in the basement after that first winter of theirs and and grow them a little bit more or we can start to move them right outside you know depending on on the weather and all that Uh, Mm -hmm. try to get them in the ground as early as possible Mm -hmm. um early april mid-april you know you don't you don't you don't want them to get frosted uh that's for sure but um you can get them in early you'll have chokes by early june thereabouts yeah, I think right now, if you want to try artichokes and you have the setup to be growing them in the basement and a room that you can get cold because your guests won't be there or won't <laughs> mind, um, getting the seeds right now is the most important thing. And I didn't check on the Seed Saver site to see if they have any. They they historically, Seed Saver has, has historically not had artichokes, but that might have changed in okay. the past year. We have... Um, procured them from seeds of Italy. Oh, right. Um, but we've also saved some, and I'm eager to see how the uh, saved artichoke seeds will germinate. We'll see. This was our first year to let a couple of the artichokes that grew. We didn't eat them, and that was hard because because uh, they're so delicious. But we saved this. We let it blossom and, and become a flower. Beautiful, beautiful blossom. Like a thistle. Yes, um, beautiful. <laughs> so we let it go to seed, and we saved it. And this will be an experiment. We'll report on this and, and let you yeah. know later if they came up and, and how they did. And I, I think the key is to starting them early indoors. I've started them in December, but I find that, you know, we, we started them in November, mid-November, around mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, maybe a little earlier. And that seems to give them enough time to get big enough where they can go through that first winter with some confidence that they're going to be ready to produce, you know, in the uh, when when they think they've arrived in their second year. You know, they um they really are good. We got out of let's see eight plants. We had 30, 35 chokes. It's kind of a luxury oh, plant beautiful. for us. It's a really nice plant. We don't preserve them. We don't can or freeze them or anything. We eat them as they come on. With lots of butter. Butter, and we also recommend that you try getting some tarragon to grow uh, so that you can add a little tarragon to your butter because that's our favorite way. And I think I read somewhere that, that artichokes are, are, are good for you, but, I mean, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> who cares? Well, I, I, well, you know, I wrote this down, but I took it out of the notes because I didn't think it was that important, but they are supposed to be oh, okay. re- have, have some really nice <laughs> antioxidant properties. All right. Everybody wants their antioxidant fix, right? Oh. So what we really want is our butter fix. Um, because uh, we realize, yeah, just mixing the butter 
with a little chopped tarragon, um, then dipping the leaves, and eventually, of course, you've got the heart of the artichoke. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about commercial artichokes is if, if you, when you buy those big artichokes in the store, you'll usually find that bit right um, above the heart that's, uh, I call it troll hair. It's the hair. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the hairy it, part. Yeah, but, but, it, but if it's, um, it's tough. Mm-hmm. But when you grow when you grow your own artichokes, you can pick them a little bit early and mm-hmm. have it be nice and tender. So you can eat that troll hair, and the troll will not object. So <laughs> I never anyway. thought of it that no, way. No, no, of course not. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's uh, you know I mean, and again, I know that uh, Kathy and I are both very fond of butter. I think we figured out one day that. <laughs> We have eaten approximately the equivalent of a butter cow each in our life so far, and we're still rolling. For those of you not from Iowa or not familiar (laughs) with the Iowa State Fair, the butter cow is a sculpture that has been created annually for many years. It's it's a cow made out of butter, full-sized, and then um, it's one of the biggest attractions in the the agricultural building. And we've eaten one of those a piece. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's artichokes delicious. help a little bit, but uh, yeah, they're, they're just—they're really a delicious food. They're a beautiful plant. Uh, the bees like the flowers, so hey, go artichokes, do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, if you have relatives out in the East Coast, like I do, you can you can fool them into thinking that you talk like them by saying that you are by far the largest artichoke farmer in Iowa. We are, I think we are. I don't know. Who else? We might be. Nobody else is let us silly know. enough to grow them. But Well, let us know. Let us know. If you grow artichokes, send us a, a, a note, and we want to compare stories. Yeah, yeah. Begin. Start them early. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks again for joining us, Kathy. You bet. We've been talking with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We've been talking about artichokes. Hey. And thanks Why to not? Kathy and also Sherry Herdina, our production squad. Uh, Thanks to the stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. We'll be back next week on the Fallon Forum.